Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Today, more and more people are waking up from the illusion of separation. They're living a new story, one that sees each human being within a web of interconnection, of a shared consciousness. At the same time, those who are holding on to the old story grip it with fierce intensity, terrified to let it go, while pushing the planet into crisis. We all know how scary real transformation can be. Why is it so hard to surrender to love? It's a remarkable moment. The opportunities are huge. The danger's real. You're just in time for the evolution. Welcome to The Evolver, where each week I talk with inspiring pioneers of the new consciousness culture. If you like this show, please remember to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Acast, or on the podcatcher of your choice. Also, post this episode on social media and mention it to friends at the Office Kombucha Tap. And please, leave a rating on iTunes. You can reach us by email at theevolver at evolver.net and follow us on Instagram at the Evolver Podcast and on Facebook at Evolver Social Movement. Now, let's get started. Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. Back in the early days of Evolver, when we first launched the Reality Sandwich webzine, every month we received a new article by a young, unknown writer living in a small town in the middle of Pennsylvania who had a philosophical bent. His name is Charles Eisenstein. He'd self-published a brilliant, long philosophical book called The Ascent of Humanity, which was getting buzz in our circles for the way it critiques the idea of the separate self and offers a coherent vision of a society based on the acknowledgement of our interconnection. A lot of people were talking about the necessary shift our culture has to make from the old-fashioned 20th century idea of the radically isolated individual who hoists himself to the top of the heap in a survival of the fittest world to the broad awareness that we are all aspects of a single consciousness which would mean that humans are fundamentally collaborative, not competitive, beings. Charles's Reality Sandwich essays covered many topics, from the rise of the divine feminine to critiques of debt-based monetary systems, but they all pointed towards what he calls the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible. His essays inspired people to see, in concrete terms, how the world can be transformed. The response we got to those articles was remarkable. They sparked lively comment threads. Often people would happen upon them at synchronistic moments that had real meaning for them. It was like magic, and some of us came to see Charles as a kind of philosophical magician. Charles's next book was Sacred Economics, which we published through the Evolver Editions imprint at North Atlantic Books. We also ran the entire book on Reality Sandwich for free publishing a section each week for nearly six months so it would be available to anyone who wasn't ready to spring for the paperback. It seemed like the kind of knowledge that ought to be available to everybody, everywhere. 
Sacred economics flips much of our received wisdom about economics on its head, right down to its title, since, as Bob Dylan famously put it, money doesn't talk, it swears. In Charles's new book, Climate, A New and Ancient Story, he takes a similarly radical approach to the environmental crisis. As we discuss in today's episode, neither the left nor right political perspective on climate is appropriate for addressing the real issues that we face. He makes important points that I think everyone who cares about the future of the ecosystem needs to hear. Charles is now widely acknowledged as one of our most original and influential thinkers, but he didn't get there by being a tenured professor or following any standard career path. We touch on that in today's episode as well. I find Charles's path truly inspiring. Is it possible that to reach the kind of clear, incisive perspective that Charles has achieved, you have to remove yourself from the social structures, like the academy, that are supposed to provoke penetrating analysis? It's worth noting that one of our most articulate voices for recognizing our interdependence has had to lift himself out of the matrix and create a path of such radical independence. Everyone seems to be talking about CBD these days, that is, cannabidiol, the non-psychoactive component of cannabis. The buzz is that CBD doesn't make you high, like THC does, but for conditions such as stress and anxiety, health professionals are increasingly recommending it as an alternative to pharmaceuticals, and scientific research is showing that CBD is highly anti-inflammatory, so it can help with pain relief. What does the scientific research say about CBD? Research centers in the United States and elsewhere are studying the effects of CBD on a variety of ailments. Scientists refer to CBD as a promiscuous compound because it offers therapeutic benefits in many different ways while tapping into how we function physiologically and biologically on a deep level. Extensive preclinical research and some clinical studies have shown that CBD has strong antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, antidepressant, antipsychotic, and neuroprotective qualities. What's the best way to take CBD? CBD-rich cannabis oil products can be taken sublingually, orally, as edibles, lozenges, beverages, tinctures, and gel caps, or applied topically. Concentrated cannabis oil extracts can also be heated and inhaled with a vape pen. Inhalation is good for treating acute symptoms that require immediate attention. The effects can be felt within a minute or two and typically last for a couple of hours. The effects of orally administered CBD-rich cannabis oil can last for four hours or more, but the onset of effects is much slower, like 30 to 90 minutes, than inhalation. Evolver is the proud papa of the Alchemist Kitchen, a botanical dispensary located in the Bowery District of New York, where you can find the finest quality CBD products available without THC. We also make our own premium CBD under the Plant Alchemy label. Our producer Jose's mom uses it for stress, anxiety, and high blood pressure. Our plants are grown in both field and greenhouse environments, cultivated using living soil organic principles, leveraging strictly organic inputs, and in full compliance with the controls defined by the Colorado Department of Agriculture. Our plants are some of the highest CBD cannabis varieties currently known. You can find out more about CBD by visiting the Alchemist Kitchen website at thealchemistskitchen.com. There's an S in there. And searching for CBD. There are articles on the blog, an FAQ, and a selection of vetted products. 
or stop by our spot at 21 East 1st Street in Manhattan between Bowery and 2nd Avenue and talk to one of our staff herbalists. At the shop, tell them you listen to the Evolver podcast and receive a 10% discount on any product on the shelves. There are very few people who are able to talk about the range of topics that you talk about and do it in a way that feels so strongly aligned to a transformative vision. And I'm wondering if you could just share for a moment how you describe to yourself what it is that you do. So all of the different topics that I, that I engage in um, are kind of spinning off of a core generator which is the transition in our culture's stories or the transition in our culture's mythology. <laughs> I've done this so many times that I'm hesitant to, to name how I see this transition, but I'll just say a, a transition from a story of separation to a story of interbeing. And this transition, because so much of our world is built on, on stories and agreements and narratives, the transition in the story also means a transition in our systems and in our psychology. It gives me insights into everything from economics to technology to gender, masculinity, femininity, relationships, you know, pretty much affects everything. So that's that's the taproot that I'm drawing from. I, that's the theme. Clearly, that's the, the big idea. That's like an organizing principle in a way, right? And then what you do is yeah. you write books and you talk and you speak. In order to do what? I mean, in terms of effectiveness, like, because I, I, clearly <clears throat> you're somebody who, with a with a with a strong commitment to making a change in the world, and not just sort of thinking philosophically about stuff that could be interesting or might be interesting to think, you know, contemplate, but actually affecting change. How do you go about doing that in your own work? My intention is to contribute to the transition in our mythology, and to participate in that. So. I do that in various ways. One is to describe what the transition is uh, or to speak to various obstacles or various phases that we individually go through or collectively go through in the transition. Um, And also, maybe even more important, is to speak from as much as I can, because it's not like I have made this transition in every cell of my being. Far from it. Maybe I would say you know, I'm um, 1% <laughs> transitioned, but as much as possible to speak from the new story, which is not only a matter of semantic information. It's not just the meaning of the words that I use, but it's also the feeling behind the words and the perception behind the words. So in a way, I am striving to be the instrument of, of this being and and I call it a new story or a new and ancient story, but it's more than a story. Uh, the story is just one layer of a being that wants to manifest on Earth that or that Earth wants to become. Part of the story includes the idea that the Earth can even have a want or that, that the Earth wants anything or wants to become something. That in itself is already a departure from a, a mechanistic worldview. So... Given that there is a being that that wants to enlist our help in bringing itself into existence, my modus operandi is to tune into that being and to 
to be in service to it as best I can with the particular gifts that I have so that, so that I then speak on behalf of it or I, or I channel the frequency of this being. And I hope that's not too woo-woo, um, but it's a matter, for me, my experience is of connecting to a field of information, information in a broad sense, including feeling states. And so when I'm plugged into that, then not only through the concepts that I use, but also through the communication of my voice and my internal state, I can serve as an invitation to the people listening to also take their 1% step, which might be different from my 1% step, but or to take the natural next step. Because I think all of us on earth, in a way, have the same the same mission that that I have to participate in the evolution of our world, of our human and more than human world. This doesn't have to look like being a thought leader or being an activist or anything like that, because the changes are so all-encompassing and so deep and pervasive that your service to the emergence of, I call it a more beautiful world, the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible, your particular service to that could be something that only manifests invisible reality in 500 years. You know, it could be something very humble, invisible, or thankless, working with a child, working with an old person. So the nature of our service, it just doesn't have to look like what it looks like for me. And it's not about, it doesn't have to be like talking about it. That's just one very narrow thread of, one small thread of the weaving. Well, that what's going on now, and this is, you know, part of clearly what your work is, you know, helping to, to um, catalyze, are many people finding ways to, in truth, embody that, let's say, new story, call it a new story, that new way of being that is emerging, which you articulate with great sensitivity and in a way that many people find helpful and inspirational. It sounds like part of your personal work is sensitizing yourself to be receptive to this energetic impulse that's in emergence so that you can catch it and then reflect it out through your your words and your work. Is that fair? I always have my antenna up so that when I see something that that I recognize, that I can recognize it, I see something, yeah, that's part of the world I want to see. That is an important technology. That is an important insight that this person has. That's an important project. This is anchoring the timeline into, into the future that we want to see. Like a lot of times, it's very lonely work, not, at least not supported economically by the current system. What's, what the current system supports economically is generally things that contribute to the old story of ascent, of domination, of control, of humanity becoming the masters of nature. Like that's what is generally speaking economically rewarded in our, in our society. And so, and not only that, but, but socially rewarded the things that give status and prestige and that your parents approve of and so on. And so I like to be able to name and help validate the beautiful, necessary work that is otherwise, to some extent, thankless. So that's part of my part of my role is basically to remind people that they're not crazy for following what they are following, and for doing the work that the rational mind says is irresponsible or impractical or not helpful um, or not enough. I, I strive to be an ally for the people doing 
to work beyond the edge of the established, here's how to save the world story. I mean, as somebody who's watched your work and collaborated in certain ways over the years, I've noticed that you don't necessarily make it easier for yourself on the economic side because you've always had a firm conviction that if you can, in the context where you can, you'd prefer to work with a donation model for what you do rather than the traditional ticket-buying situation. And you've been doing that with your online learning. You've been doing it with live events. You've been doing it in all kinds of amazing ways in a way that, frankly, is a fantastic example for folks who are interested in developing an alternative model. But obviously, it does have certain challenges, right? Well, it's funny. You would assume, as many do, that it's not as financially remunerative to do it that way. In, in the story of separation, no one is going to give you money unless you coerce it out of them. For example, by withholding your good or service and saying, well, I'm only going to give this to you unless you, if you pay me. That's a natural assumption if you take for granted a world of separate competing self-interested individuals. But when, when we let go of that assumption and see humans and all beings as having a deep desire to give toward something that is beautiful to them or meaningful to them, to, to be part of something beyond themselves. And if we understand that's your basic nature, that you want to give, I don't need to coerce it out of you. Then it would be totally understandable and expected that the model that I use for my, for my business would work. And indeed, it does work. Yeah, like I have online courses, et cetera, et cetera. And payment is purely voluntary. There's no premium content or there's no perks whatsoever behind a paywall. You know, you can pay any amount you want. You can pay zero. Totally welcome, full, full access to everything. So I'm not coercing or, or manipulating people to give me money. But nonetheless, a lot of people do. Like I'd say probably half the people who sign up for the online courses pay at least something. So, you know, it's not like I'm, you know, adding to my Rolls Royce collection here. Like it's not, but, but it's enough to, keep the operation going. And I don't have a lot of anxiety about money. I can, and sometimes, you know, there's ebbs and flows and sometimes it looks like, uh, you know, I'm not going to be able to keep doing this. But if that happens, I understand that that would be part of a universal generosity that's giving me a signal about what to do next, where to move next. That's giving me a course correction because part of the spirit of gift is that I want to give my gifts where they are appreciated. So the gratitude that a financial contribution signals is a kind of a, um, a navigational tool. Listening to the universe, the universe is essentially will be speaking to you through the way that, say, the support for your work is manifesting. And if it's... Through the way that people respond. The way that people respond. That's right. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, And it's the same... Like if you're a baker, you know, and you're baking bread and you're, you don't know it, but you've, you've set up your bakery in gluten-freeville and no one's buying your bread. You could say, well, I'm not making very good bread. Or you could say, hmm, maybe I'm not giving the right gift for this place and time. So it's, it's an occasion to examine, do I understand who I'm giving to? Do I understand what they really need? And I'm not saying that if you are engaged in some project or endeavor and the money is not coming in that that must mean you're giving inappropriately because 
we have a really uh, degenerate system right now that rewards things that do not serve the well-being of humans and nature and that um, does not reward things that really are meeting genuine needs. So I'm not, I don't want to make like this ideology out of it, but it can be a tuning mechanism. And anyway, long story short, the, the way that I do my events, it's, it's almost like an experiment. You know, I'm like, okay, I'm going to try it out. Can I actually live in the understanding of interbeing, of interconnection, of, of non-separation? Does it work? Let's give it a try. At what point for you did that clarity around the story of separation versus the story of interbeing, interconnection, when did that really come to you in a way that you noticed it and it felt it came through very strong? Was there a moment? Was there something that, that led you there where you felt it personally? Well, I remember one time after I had resettled in America after having lived abroad for a long time and, you know, I was trying to raise my kids in a suburban neighborhood in State College, Pennsylvania. And I had this ideal of what suburbia could be. It was kind of drawing from my childhood, you know, where all the kids are running around in packs on their bikes and playing cops and robbers and hopscotch and stickball and soccer and everyone knows each other and and they're playing outside all day and building forts and that kind of thing. Did you have like a really happy suburban childhood yourself? Did you come from that kind of background? I mean, we did have a neighborhood like that. It was already, though, in decline. Um, I'm sure in the 50s and 60s, it was much more like that before television and air conditioning began driving people indoors and before economy became so delocalized. Anyway, there's a lot of trends that contribute to the dissolution of community. But what I noticed was that there weren't kids playing outside, unsupervised, and that the neighbors didn't know each other. Everyone would just get into their cars and drive away and drive back, and maybe you'd wave to your neighbor as they pulled into their garage. Uh, there, there wasn't that kind of community, and I was disturbed by this. And it hit me, when I was walking around the neighborhood, it hit me that this is a kind of separation, the atomization of society, and that the ecological crisis is also a kind of separation. And military imperialism is also an expression of separation. I'm like, wow, all of this, all of the, the horrors and injustices that I'm seeing in the world are coming from the same source. It's the perception that we are separate from nature, separate from each other. And so then I began to examine, like, okay, how does the money system embody and perpetuate separation? What are the design features of it that are aligned with that story? And it became crystal clear exactly how that is. And so I looked at, you know, in the medical system, the educational system, so on and so forth. So I, did, I had like this revelation. This was around maybe 2002 that this happened, 2001, 2002. And that's when I began to elaborate it and write books on it. But yeah, I was just walking around, you know, just walking around the neighborhood that it landed on me. Were you already doing some kind of spiritual practice or meditation practice at that point? Something that was helping lead you through your, your own sense of connection building? Not really. You know, I, I mean, I've done some yoga and meditation in my life, but nothing. I'm not a very impressive practitioner of any, anything. 
I, I, I guess walking is my meditation. When I, when I go for walks, my mind, first it empties and then all this information floods in. And uh, it's very pleasurable for me. Yeah, but I can't attribute anything I do to a strong spiritual practice. I carry certain mantras with me that maybe over time change my brain and change my perception and eventually change my responses to the world. How do you use them? It's like holding a question or a concept or a sentence uh, over a long period of time. Like one, one of them is, what does it look to be you? Or, yeah. And you come back to, do you, I mean, when you say mantra, do you repeat it to yourself many times? Or is it just something like, it's a, you use it as a question you keep returning to and then considering in different ways, coming at it from different directions? Yeah, it's, I don't repeat it necessarily too many times. In fact, I would say that the, the mantras come to me and they seize me, or an idea or a question will seize me, and it won't let me go. The way that some of us, well, certainly when I talk about some of us, I mean me, kind of got to this idea of deep interconnection. It started maybe in an intellectual way, kind of got it, started seeing things in a, you mm-hmm. know, through my, you know, just by sort of thinking through the problems of society and coming from a family of communists, and, you know, that helped. Mm-hmm. But there was a moment where things started to get visceral for me through my body. And I started to experience it on a personal level in a way that then sort of shifted all of the ways I thought about it intellectually. Like it was something happened when I, you know, know, frankly, I think plant medicine helped create that sense for me where uh, I was presented with, you know, you know, essentially my body on an energetic matrix, you know, that extends out through all of existence and understood that there's a living fabric of being, you know, that I am a part of and could not, could not even begin to truly separate myself from, that it's, there's no way that I exist without being plugged into that. Once that started to kick in on a visceral level, the intellectual side then really transformed and became much juicier for me. I'm wondering how you've experienced it for yourself. Is it purely a psychic, <laughs> yeah. mental thing, or is it something more than that? Gosh, I mean, I wish I could say that it was more than a mental thing, but I don't know. Like, I'm not the most embodied guy, you know? I, uh, oh, but you've written books about I, diet. You were like a yoga guy. Like, I, you know, you're in really good yeah. shape, obviously. You know, you're not just sitting behind a desk, you know, downing cheeseburgers. I mean, I had a very powerful psychedelic experience when I was 22 years old. It didn't give me so much an embodied connection to all of life. It was more that it showed me how vast mind and universe and reality are. And like the fact that this medicine, it was LSD, could even exist. The fact that, that it was basically sequestered off by society into this little illegal silo and that there was so much fear around it. And I could no longer, I was like, okay, if what I've seen even exists, then what else exists that has been hidden from us that is not part of the worldview that I grew up in? It, it started me to, to question everything, to take nothing for granted. I was living in Taiwan at the time and, and spent nine years there and came across a lot, of, a lot of phenomena that were considered impossible in the worldview that I grew up in. In, and certainly in my birth religion, which was atheism, rational materialism, 
and here I was directly experiencing things that that flatly contradicted what I had believed to be true. Really, like what? And, and like then, when you say that, what are you thinking of specifically? Chinese medicine, qigong, ghosts, uh, Taoist priests, things like that. Can you tell me about the ghosts? Well, I didn't see any ghosts, but completely rational, sober, normal people took it, took it as a matter of course that there are ghosts and would, you know, tell stories about it. And the stories wouldn't be like, oh my God, this incredible thing happened. I'm special because I see a ghost. It was more like that was spooky and unsettling. And I really don't want a ghost in my taxi cab. So I went to like this, like, for example, a taxi driver told me a couple of weeks before had picked up a, a very late at night, picked up a woman dressed in wedding garb who got in the back of the cab and then uh, asked him to take her to a certain address in Ximunding, like in the old part of town. When he got there and turned to say, OK, we're here now, there was no one in the cab. And then like the address turned out to be a building that had burned down many years ago. So the address didn't exist. Oh, that's awesome. And so his, you know, his response, like that did not rock his world. That did not change his world. That was, so, you know, I took my cab to the Taoist priest and he, you know, cleared out the ghostly energy from the cab and that solves the problem. You know, it's like it's, it, the way that, that people spoke of these things was not as if these were supernatural events or supernormal events. Because there was a place for them in the culture, in the story of the world that the culture contained. There was a place for these things. It wasn't weird. I mean, there were so, so many things that that had a, a place in their reality picture that contradicted what I thought to be real. And of course, my rational mind could explain them all away in the terms of my birth story. I could say that this person was pulling my leg. I could say that the Qigong master was playing some trick with my mind when it sure seemed like I felt the chi uh, emanating from his hands. But, you know, maybe I was being suggestible. Um, and it sure seemed like I started pouring sweat when he opened my, whatever he opened, my channels. But, you know, maybe he snuck away and turned up the heat in the room to hook me into his Qigong school. And it sure seemed like this Chinese doctor fixed my severely sprained ankle with uh, a painful massage followed by an herbal poultice. But maybe I wasn't hurt that much after all. And maybe the swelling to double the size of my ankle was psychosomatic. I could explain away everything, but I had to resort to a story about myself as being more sane, more rational, a better observer of reality than everybody around me in that culture. And that these are superstitious, uneducated, primitive people, basically, who don't understand the human mind's capacity to deceive itself, that uh, are just poor observers of reality and so on. Like I could, in order to maintain the worldview that I grew up in, I had to assume a position of arrogance. And the LSD had blown away my arrogance. I was like, whoa, I do not know anything. So I was open. And there were some other experiences too that, that blew my mind at the time one of which was my first engagement with the Mandelbrot set and the knowledge that order emerges spontaneously from chaos in conditions of nonlinearity. That was, I still haven't gotten over that. that. That's a whole other discourse, but yeah, I was, I was bestowed 
the set of experiences that I needed to launch me on a path of inquiry that took nothing for granted. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I mean, you started at Yale, where you studied philosophy, right? You did a and mathematics and yeah. mathematics. You yeah. did a traditional degree, yeah. right? But That's didn't, right. Didn't go to grad school. I mean, when you do philosophy as an undergrad and don't no. go to grad school, like, what's that about, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, as I read professional philosophy, academic philosophy, it did not satisfy my thirst for the answers to life's great questions seemed like they were spending an awful lot of time displaying how smart they were to each other. Yeah, and so in Taiwan, I assume you must have just gone into a, a, sort of a, a path of you know, your own self-discovery and your own inquiry. Yeah, that's right. I did, I did translation, which didn't require a huge amount of time. So then I had time to, like I did a lot of the reading that you know, eventually came into my work later during that time. I had time to read. You know, I was everything I could get my hands on in science, um, especially physics, Buddhism, Taoism. Did you, did you study energy healing while you were there? Did you go deep into that? No, I mean, I went to a Qigong center for a while, but I never, I mean, you know, I knew people there who got really deep into it, but I was, I was pretty casual about it. When did you begin to see yourself as a writer and position yourself as a writer in the world? In a way, I still don't. Uh, for me, I don't aspire to be a writer. It seemed the most appropriate tool to transmit the information that I was that I was gathering that seemed really important. So I, I began doing it, you know, when I was, let's see, like around the year 2000, 2001, I began working on, on my books, but it wasn't out of any ambition to be a writer. I don't know, like, I don't, I don't think like I'm a, you know, brilliant literary stylist or anything, but I can do it competently. The ideas that I was working with were, were quite complex. So they, they needed a book like book length treatment. It was just what was called called on called for at the time. So in the book Climate, you talk about how our fixation on climate change as the cause of the environmental crisis that we're in is actually dangerous. I'm I'm suspicious of it. It it fits so uh, neatly into the general approach to problem solving of finding a cause, one thing that is the cause of everything else that we can then focus on and attack. We can attack that cause and the problem will be solved. You know, right now, like everything from red tide in Florida to forest fires in California to insect decline in Puerto Rico and so on is being blamed on global warming. I don't have a strong opinion, actually, as to whether that is a valid attribution. But notice how convenient it is to blame that one thing and therefore ignore many, many other 
possible factors, ways in which human beings or civilized society is damaging ecosystems, cutting down forests, uh, draining wetlands. If you want to preserve industrial civilization as we know it, it would be great if we could keep doing everything that we're doing, but switch to another fuel source and then call it sustainable. Right. But the more I, more I look into the ecological crisis in all of its expressions, the more I think that the cause of it is not one thing, but the cause of it is everything. Or you say so, everything. What do you mean by everything? Everything that we are doing to the world, from strip mines to development to industrial fishing to uh, sunscreen that kills coral reefs uh, to uh, noise pollution. But the most damaging being development, deforestation, and plowing up soil. So these things, these disrupt the, the water cycle and basically disrupt the physiology of the planet. The basic principle that I'm operating from in the book is that life creates the conditions for life, including a healthy climate, and that if we continue this full-on assault on living systems and living beings on Earth, then even if we cut emissions to zero, the planet will still die of organ failure, the organs being the Amazon, the Congo, the um, rainforests of Indonesia, the mangroves of Southeast Asia, the seagrass meadows of New England, the whales, the elephants, the wolves, the bears, the fish, the bats, the bees. These are organs and tissues of a, of, of a living being. It's not a big complicated machine. And if we can regulate the inputs and outputs and regulate the gas fuel the air fuel mixture or whatever, as if it were a diesel engine, then things will be fine. Or, or spray sulfate aerosols in the sky to c- reflect light or something like that and cool down the earth. This is the wrong approach. That's a mechanical, a geomechanical approach. And we need to understand earth as, as a living being, which doesn't mean that greenhouse gases are good or, or harmless because the way I see it, a damaged, depleted, physiology is less able to handle changes in atmospheric gases. Like the whole thing becomes more fragile. So yeah, I do think that we should cut emissions. Uh, But in fact, here's one of the realizations I came to. If you really take seriously the preservation, or I would say even to hold sacred all of the ecosystems on earth, then even without appealing to carbon emissions, you can no longer do tar sands removal because, I mean, look what you've seen the pictures, like look what it does to the boreal forest. You can no longer do offshore oil drilling because you're going to get oil spills that devastate marine life and poison the ocean. You can no longer do mountaintop removal. You can no longer do fracking. You can no longer do nuclear power plants and, and big hydro. Like everything that people oppose on, on climate grounds, you can also oppose it on living earth from the living earth paradigm. And so then, you know, I I wonder, is it even wise to hitch the wagon of environmentalism onto the narrative of anthropogenic global warming? Well, it's very clean. It's a very simple way to understand the problem. But then in the book, you actually use a phrase, which I love, it becomes a kind of carbon fundamentalism. It's like everything gets seen through that paradigm. And when it's seen through that paradigm, there's an easy answer to every problem. 
But in fact, what right. you're talking about, and which is real, and we think see it in so many other ways through our own experience, is that that the entire post-industrial economic model that we have is driving the Earth essentially to the brink of catastrophe. The whole planet, because of the poisons, the toxins, you know, the the insect population dropping by 70% over the last 30 years. I mean, there's certain things that are happening that are so overwhelming when you really begin to accept that the the planet is going through this kind of freakout. You don't even know where to begin, but in terms of how to address it. But if you say, oh man, you know, really, the problem is the climate. I've got these 10 things we can do to solve the climate crisis. You know, we're going to reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. We're going to reduce the amount that temperature goes up over the course of the next 100 years, and that will mitigate the problems that we're having. We'll make it, yeah. right? It's such an easier right. thing to explain and to talk about with other people and, even, and, to, and to mobilize politically around because then you're saying in a political context, what you're able to say is there are these five things we can do without having to massively change our way of life that will allow us to survive. All we got to do is transition to sustainable fuels, to, to carbon neutral fuels. And incidentally, that is actually um, causing a lot of damage in, in the form of a massive land grab throughout Africa, South America, and, and Asia to acquire land to plant biofuels, which comes at the expense of subsistence agriculture, peasant agriculture, and wild ecosystems. But, you know, if you do the the superficial arithmetic you know these these biomass these palm oil eucalyptus tetrofa trees these plantations they you know can replace x amounts of coal or gas so they are helping prevent climate change and this is happening like central europe uh in romania I, i've heard that that vast forests are being wood chipped to feed power plants in Great Britain to generate supposedly carbon neutral fuel. A healthy biodiverse for, biodiverse forest is a sponge for rain. It it soaks into the earth. It holds the soil so that there's not flooding and mudslides and runoff. And then holding the moisture in the ground and transpiring it over time uh, extends the rainy season because the forest is producing clouds. And in fact. The forest even gives off aromatic compounds and and bacteria that seed cloud formation. So over forests, and especially biodiverse forests, you have more cloud cover and more rainfall. And it generates then also because the evaporation from all those layers of, of leaves is so fast, when that water vapor condenses in the upper or in the you know mid atmosphere then it creates a low pressure zone that that draws moist air in from the oceans over sometimes thousands of miles in the case of the amazon so it contributes to an entire physiology uh, extermination of wolves and beavers like these have these start a tr- uh, they call it a trophic cascade that ends up really damaging the the resiliency of the forest and making the forest susceptible to disease for example like the beavers would slow down the water. The entire eastern U.S. was 
completely covered by beaver dams. What, what are streams today were not streams. They had five or 10 beaver dams per mile wow. that created one pool after another. It was like a terrace of pools. And I, I, in my book research, I came across like this, uh, this guy who's, who looked at geological surveys going back to the 18th century. And a lot of things, you know, there were a lot of marshes and, and fens and bogs and wetlands back then that are no longer wetlands. And it was because of the extermination of beavers and also like engineering projects to straighten rivers and things like that. And also because of the exposure of soil through deforestation and through horticulture. Anyway, like it's a big complicated picture a full ecosystem operating, then pests can proliferate, trees get weakened. Complicated. That, it's actually, there's, a, there's, yeah. there, there's, you know, there's this buzz around about how they're going to create uh, um, mechanical bees to do pollination where there are no bees anymore. But there's only so much, right. there's, there's only so far you can go in that way of thinking. The condition I want to address in this book is if you are basing policy on carbon, on these metrics, and if you are basing your own personal decisions on you know, being carbon neutral and what's low carbon and so on, you're going to miss a lot of the picture. We have to look at Earth as through the lens of physiology, uh, as a living being. And when we do that, then we understand that every being is precious. Every being is giving a gift, and we don't even know what it is. I heard a uh, What's his face? Paul Stamets speaking about honeybee, the colony collapse disorder, you know, and how he noticed that bees are attracted to certain fungi that have the very compounds that confer resistance to one of the um, vectors of the colony collapse disorder. And these fungi grow particularly where bears scratch the tree and the sap comes out. It's just you know, what's the carbon score of a bear? You, if to, to have a carbon score of a bear, you'd have to take that into account. What's the carbon score of a salmon? You have to take into account their role in nutrient transport that makes stronger, more fire-resistant, more disease-resistant trees. We, we've just, we're just scratching the surface. And, and we're not even asking the right questions. But when we see Earth as alive, then we begin to ask the right questions. In the book, you, you say something which I really appreciate, that it's the reanimation of the world that is critical to ecological healing, to our understanding of the dynamic nature of nature. Right. And without that, how are we going to really shift our own um, awareness about what's going on and what's important and how, to, and how to prioritize the changes that need to happen in the way that, that we operate as a society? Um, one of the another thing that you actually mentioned in the book, which I, I really appreciate, was how the environmental movement, in its messaging right now, through focusing on climate change, is looking at how it, it talks about the danger always, and that we may not survive, and sort of harps on our fear about our own survival, rather than right. looking at nature as such extraordinary beauty that we feel in our bodies that gives us hope and love and life, that love of nature, it's not part of how we talk about the environment and the kind of change we need. 
Instead, there's still this sense yeah. of the, mechani- the mechanical way that humans can essentially look at nature as a resource. And it's more about how do we manage our resource. A lot of environmental argumentation has turned toward here are the bad things that will happen to us if we don't um, act more sustainably. Uh, you know, here are the economic losses. Here's the sea level rise. Here's the bad things that are going to happen to us. And that somehow makes the makes environmentalism acceptable. Like it's kind of not okay in policy circles to say, well, we should save the whales because they are sacred beings. We should preserve the forest because it's beautiful and deserving of life and deserving of respect and it's sacred. Like that does not fit into policy language, which is about costs and benefits. And this was not, you know, back in the back in the day, back in the 60s and 70s, it when when one of the iconic issues of environmentalism was save the whales, no one was saying terrible things will happen to humanity if we don't save the whales. We'll be doomed if we don't save the whales. There's some danger, I think, in using these self-interested arguments to promote environmental protection. One of them in the book is that it's possible, like you mentioned mechanical bees, what if we could get along without nature? What if the trend continues today where we have um, more and more extinction and more and more technological substitutes for what has been wiped out? So an increasing amount of food, for example, is grown hydroponically. I was going to say, that is the vision for the singularity for certain people, this idea that you know, ultimately you'll just be able to upload your consciousness into some computer. You will live, right. quote-unquote live, if that's life forever and you know all this messy biology it really isn't so necessary and that gets into other issues i mean the fundamental conceit here is that only number is real or only the measurable is real or that we can fully quantify reality so part of that ideology is that consciousness and cognition can be fully embodied in a neural network um in uh, and therefore, therefore, could be digitized. But this view of the brain—that it is basically a hundred billion on-off switches—is woefully inadequate <laughs> to explain consciousness. So, I, yeah, that's a whole other pathway. But, but well, it certainly doesn't explain what happens when a ghost gets in the backseat of your taxi and gives you the address of a of a building that's no longer there. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I'm not even going there. Like, you know, I. I Actually, in the book, I do kind of go there a bit. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I do talk about indigenous worldviews and what they think is causing climate derangement. They have a different, many indigenous people I've talked to have a different view of it than conventional climate science. I mean, there's many different, I've heard different things. Uh, one of them is that human consciousness and the global climate are related Humans for thousands of years have maintained a covenant with the planet to provide a suitable habitation for human beings. And this covenant is maintained through ceremony, rituals, practices, sacrifices, uh, and we have our part and the rest of life has, has its part. And we are no longer holding up our end of the bargain, no longer performing the ceremonies, no longer treating these other beings with respect. And therefore, the covenant is being disrupted. And so the nature is no longer going to take care of us either. 
I, I honestly can see that. There's different ways to frame it. I mean, one way I might think of it for myself is more the consciousness of the planet includes us. And the way right. that we operate in relationship to everything else that is here with us can help to hold the beauty of the balance or it can disrupt it and that it responds to mm -hmm. us, right? And then you yeah. can get really mechanical and material about it by going, well, yeah, you respond, you know, it responds to us when we tear off the top of a mountain, but, you know, it can, or, or whatever we're doing that's really disruptive to the environment, but it can also happen on a much more subtle level because we yes. really don't understand the nature of consciousness. And you also don't have to appeal to, to kind of esoteric stuff uh, to explain the connection between human consciousness and the health of the planet, because it's pretty obvious that if we have an unhealthy social climate, economic climate, political climate, psychic climate, that we're going to have an unhealthy global climate as well, simply because it's like, if what, what are we going to serve if we are in a state of war with each other, how are we ever going to be effective participants in, in global healing if our first priority is to defeat the enemy or to build a wall? Um, I mean, that's one thing I'm not even hearing very much in the talk about the wall, the border wall, is what's going to happen to the wildlife who migrate back and forth. That's not even you know, on the radar in the political question. But anyway, I think that intuitively we understand that these different kinds of climate are intimately connected and therefore that any service to healing on any of these levels will also be of service to healing the global climate. That this is not a matter of switching to another fuel source, that it is a change in our relationship between self and other on every level between the self of humanity and the other of nature, but also between the self of me and the other of you, uh, the self of one nation and the other of the rest of the world, um, the self of one race, one gender, et cetera, et cetera, to, the, to the, those that have been othered. Like all of the healing is actually the same healing. There's this kind of crusading attitude among climate activists that this is the one important thing. If we don't solve this problem, then nothing else matters. But how do we solve this problem? Like, how do we stop the consumption machine if we have people who are so um, alienated, so disconnected, that they, and, and carrying so many wounds and traumas and unmet needs, that they're desperate to find something to compensate for that, for that loss of beingness that comes through the cutoff of connection to nature and community? Like we have hungry ghosts, a society of hungry ghosts that are driven to consume or that are driven to accumulate money, that are driven by anxiety all the time. Like if that doesn't change, then we're not going to stop stripping the earth. It's impossible. Then what do you replace that desire for the material stuff with? In our society, where so many people are feeling wounded, and isolated, separated, and are struggling, you know, with, we have, you know, epidemic amounts of depression in our society, obesity. You opioid addiction. Opioid addiction, absolutely. Yeah. Um, a lot of issues that come from deep 
emotional wounding, a social fabric that is essentially dissolving. Our communities are That's right. not as strong as they as they once were, and the, right. everyone is essentially engaging with the world through a screen or you know a battery of screens. Right. So there's a lot of work to be done, um, and there's a lot of domains where healing is necessary. And that's why I don't have a universal formula. I mean, I, I take it down to a root cause of separation and, and say that we can participate in the transition from a story of separation to a story of interbeing, and we can heal this wound. And how to do that? I mean, there's a billion ways to do that. So it depends on what calls to you specifically, what has intersected with your life, what is the natural object of your care? To understand that this is, I spoke before, I think of the dream of the earth or what the earth wants to become. This is a being that has an inconceivable intelligence that puts each one of us at the right place in the right time to meet the need with the full complement of our gifts, our resources, our history, limited though we may be, there is an intelligence operating that gives us opportunities to act as agents of healing because the cause. So like even, you know, in conventional carbon fundamentalist terms, if you say, what is the cause of climate change? Well, it's our, our current fossil fuel based system. And what drives that? What drives the endless growth of our consumption? And you can get to the economic system and, you know, that's a big piece of it. But part of it is also our experience of life, our psychology, our cutoff from belonging. And, and as long as we are so cut off, and as you were saying, like as long as we, the social fabric continues to dissolve, then the consumption will never abate. So we have to, like, how do we rebuild the social fabric? How do we weave people back together again? Again, no shortcut solution. Well, how, how do you do it in your life? I'm curious, actually, for yourself. Do you make certain decisions about, let's say, do you do a media fast for 24 hours? Do you drop, you know, say, oh, man, I'm just like not going to look at my phone for a week. Do you create certain kinds of ceremonial engagements with, you know, with your friends or your, you know, your, your community personally? Do you, are you deliberate about that for yourself? I, I do recognize in myself the the uh, longing to reunite, um, the longing for intimacy with people, with nature, the longing for tribe, the longing to belong, like everybody else. Like I've, there's obstacles to meeting that need, but there are also opportunities. The orientation toward that need, like first even to recognize it and to identify the source of the pain, this omnipresent anxiety. That is inescapable if you don't feel at home in the world. And what makes us feel at home in the world is to have a full complement of intimate relationships with people and with non with non-human beings, with place, with community. So to recognize, yeah, this is this is why I'm hurting, or this is part of why I'm hurting. And then to give attention to the willingness to reconnect. That focus of attention is a kind of a beacon for other powers to bring to us what we want, to bring to us the 
connections to make them available to us. And then there still might be um, a threshold to cross to actually say yes to that connection. There's a choice there. But I think that like on a base level, to give attention to your longing, even if you have no plan to meet that longing, even if every plan seems seems uh, unrealistic, like, oh yeah, I can't move to an eco-village, forget that, that's impossible, and there's no way I'm going to have community because of this and that and my financial situation and society is set up this way and like there's a million reasons why it'll never happen but fortunately we don't have to understand how it's going to happen the longing the attention on the longing and the attention on the willingness on the readiness to reconnect is itself possible is, is itself very powerful and it's like that becomes a beacon for unseen beings to bring us what we want and it's like it's not that you don't have to do anything and all you have to do is is meditate or or give your inward attention to this longing and this readiness i'm not saying you don't have to do anything i'm saying that this practice will will bring you things to do because a lot of people are like i don't even know if there's anything i can do i feel helpless it's not that it's not that I'm not doing it. It's that there isn't even an opportunity for me to, to, to connect, or so it seems. But as we give attention to that intention, the opportunities either become more visible that we're already there, or new opportunities serendipitously enter into life. When you talk about unseen beings, for me, I, that actually resonates very strongly. Because in my own practice, in my own path along in this in this general direction, I have shifted from being a total, you know, secular materialist atheist who saw himself as a essentially, you know, mechanical uh, accident of, you know, what you might call nature, but it was also essentially just some kind of, you know, things happening that somehow by mistake ended up creating some kind of consciousness to seeing myself as part of a larger flow and developing and cultivating my own personal practices to open myself to that flow that is nature, that is the sacred, and allowing that to do its work. And understanding that where it takes me is usually wiser than where I think I ought to be going. So Mm -hmm. uh, it's about, you know, in some ways just trying to get out of my own way in order to let that thing emerge and understanding how being open-hearted as best I can, you know, trying to maintain a certain amount of modesty about what it is I think that I'm doing in the world is helpful in that process. Um, but essentially, we're talking about a spiritual way of of engaging with your life. Yeah. Uh, uh, let me add a little bit to the part about unseen beings. Um, and it can be unseen beings like ancestors or something like that. But they I also would like to include seen beings. For example, the mountains that I'm looking at right now. This morning I went for a walk and came across these enormous boulders. And I just looked at them for a while and they were blasting silence at me. Even though there was road noise in the distance, it was like the silence was louder than the road noise. And they were transmitting something to me. I can close my eyes and there it is right there. It imprinted itself on me. 
most people who have ever lived on Earth understood themselves to be surrounded by powers, by intelligences. When we release into that reality, and it's no longer all up to us, and instead of needing to impose our will and our design upon the world and to have to have a plan for getting from point A to point B, we can participate in a larger will, a larger design, and a larger plan. Which isn't to say that we never make plans, but it's that things can happen that we don't know how to make happen at the outset. I would like to propose to people listening that they just try this release um, just to inhabit, even as an experiment, the perceptual stance of seeing everything as a being. And it comes so naturally. It's like in our DNA to look at a mountain and to believe that the mountain is looking back at us, to look at the sun and to believe that the sun sees us, to touch a tree and to know that the tree is aware of our presence. It's a step into a different reality. And in that reality, a different causality operates, which is good because in the causality that we inherited, the situation on earth is hopeless. What gives me hope is the healing potential that I see in people and ecosystems when, when it is allowed. People close to me um, have healed from cancer that was supposed to be a death sentence. You know, this happens. What gives me hope is the beauty that I see in other human beings, the giftedness, the power that I, I see behind the eyes of everybody I meet, actually. Um, what gives me hope is knowing that the process of transition involves a period of hopelessness, of being overwhelmed, of not knowing if we're even going to make it. That's part of an initiatory process. The communications that I experience with greater beings. It's a good list. Charles, thank you so much yeah. for being with us today. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Ken. It was good to talk with you again. I want to thank Charles for being with us, and thank you, too, for listening. You can follow Charles at his website, charleseisenstein.org, O-R-G, or on his Facebook page, which is Charles Eisenstein. I want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the ACAST team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album The Secret Song. And our interstitial music are tracks by The Human Experience, Sunu from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and Here for a Moment on the album Gone Gone Beyond. Please check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Find the others. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.